0: Following a deadly chemical weapon attack on civilians, the now six-year-long Syrian civil war is once again in the international spotlight, provoking condemnation, speculation, and in the case of the United States, a direct attack. This instance, as well as other international actions, have shown that the Trump administration might be more likely to intervene with military force. How this will impact the populations around the world is a topic today after this hour's news. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Following a deadly chemical attack on civilians, a now six-year-long Syrian civil war is once again in the international spotlight, provoking condemnation, speculation, and in the case of the United States, a direct attack. There are rising tensions elsewhere in the world, with Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and the Middle East, Uh, many places of which already have uh, the potential to turn violent. So today we're gonna talk about those issues with uh, four panelists, three in the studio, and one who is joining us on the phone. We have Iman Al-Ramadan, who's a lecturer at Indiana University in the School of Global and International Studies. Jamshid Chaksi is a professor at IU's School of Global and International Studies. Robert Hall is, uh, is uh, the president, Robert? L- leader. Leader of the Grassroots Conservatives here in Bloomington. And also joining us by phone is David Keppel, spokesperson for the Bloomington Peace Action Coalition. You can follow our show on Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at one 877 Two eight five nine three four eight. So welcome to uh, all of you. We, we this is a, a fast-moving issue. A lot of things are going on in the world, and um, I think I want to I want to start with Iman Al Ramadan, um, who is with the School of Global and International Studies. And you have you are from Syria. You have family in Syria. So yes. when something like this happens, you know, in your homeland. I mean, can you give us sort of a an insight into the way you feel uh, you know, when your country becomes so prevalent in the news like this?
1: Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me, mm-hmm. and uh, thank you for the American people who listen to our story and follow up and uh, feel what's going on over there. Mm-hmm. Um, I start with uh, myself. Uh, I'm a very positive person, and uh, I love life, I love everybody, and I smile a lot, even when I am cry. But when it comes to my country and every day, I have this fear, inside fear, which I can't show on my face. It's inside because uh, I'm a mom, and I have to be strong for the sake of my children. I have to be an example for them. A strong mom should be positive, should be um, uh, happy but uh, when they are not around me or anybody around i cry and i cry so much because uh, you don't know uh, what's going on over there here we we you know we follow the news we follow the media and all this social media everything what's going on but the pain when you are in pain and when you feel that you have your mom your brothers you you know my mom who spent all her life to see me as a professor, as uh, somebody who is well recognized. And thank you, thank you for recognizing me as a Syrian American and proud to be American mm-hmm. as, and Syrian. So uh, I think every day of my mom, uh, I know uh, I have this phone app and I'm in a group chat with my family. And if I don't hear anything from them for 24 hours, that drives me Crazy, because I know that bombs are here and there. I know that people uh, uh, are dying. Uh, if they are not dying of bombs, they are dying of of uh, of uh, uh, hunger. They are dying of um, stress. They know. They know that. Today we live. I live this minute, but I don't know next minute what will happen. And I know for me, I know my my, belo- my be- beloved ones, my family, my friends, my neighbors, the people I grew with, I grew up with, and I know them. Uh, I hear their voice this week. I don't know next week what will happen, mm-hmm. and that is something. It's painful, very, very painful, and um, yeah. So okay, Well,
0: well, thank thanks for that explanation, Um, Jamshid Choxi. You're professor of IU School and IU School of Global and International Studies. And as you told me before the program, specializing in Iran, the Persian Gulf, Afghanistan. Um, Can you just give us sort of shape this um, the conflict in Syria, the civil war in Syria, and, and what's what started it? Where are we now?
2: Well, it's interesting. It starts off as a popular uh, non-sectarian, uh, so uh, civil unrest against a brutal dictator. And now, six years later, we have no end in sight. The country is completely fragmented. It's fragmented not just uh, along political lines, but along religious lines. Uh, we have a variety of external actors. The Russians are there, together with the Iranians, with Hezbollah. Uh, uh, and uh, various Shia militias supporting Assad and the Alabites. We have the Sunni majority up in a rebellion with both secular groups, but also with ISIS, uh, ISIS uh, the Islamic State, also with uh, uh, Al-Qaeda factions. We have the Kurds uh, who have now carved out their own independent area in the north, and... Uh, The long-term fear is that the Kurds would want to link up with Kurdish groups uh, who have their own autonomous region in Iraq, also then create instability by taking over parts of Syria, uh, Turkey and Iran. So we have that moving part as well. And then you have the small minorities, uh, the Druze, the Christians, the few Jews who are left there, uh, who essentially kept their head down. Uh, while the uh, Assad father and son were completely in charge, and therefore were tarred by everyone else's having linked up with the regime, when all they were doing was just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have those groups as well for, who face an uncertain future. And complicating all this is, yes, you have the superpowers. The Russians are there. We are increasingly getting involved also on the ground. We have special armed forces active there. Uh, we have then this uh, the new uh, wa- administration in Washington being, shall we say, more activist in terms of bombings in Syria. But we don't really have any kind of outcome in sight. And think perhaps that goes to Iman's main issue: that is, wh- how will this resolve, and how will your family be it's safe? Very complex. Yeah. It's yeah. that's
1: really the complicated. Com-
2: yeah. That's the complicated aspect of this: is yeah. how do you solve this? Uh, for one, it's it's clear, you know, that. Uh, However, whatever solution, uh, Assad has to be moved off in some fashion, though it seems unlikely that the Russians or the Iranians are willing to. So recently, uh, you know, uh, when the the U.S. Secretary of State was meeting with the Russian foreign minister, the Russians indicated that they were not uh, banking on, or shall we, how do they phrase it? They said they're not uh, placing all their bets on a single personality. So there may be a way to sort of move Assad off the scene. It's hard to have him remain there, given that, it's. uh, and this is something your listeners may or may not know, is that more than 90% of the deaths in Syria are caused by the regime, ultimately, and not even by ISIS. Uh, so that's sort of an interesting sort of take there. Right. Well, we
0: have two, uh, two other guests with us, and both are very active Monroe County citizens. Bob Hall's here in the studio. David Keppel's joining us on the phone. I want to ask Bob Hall first, you know, from your perspective as uh, a member of the leader of the grassroots conservatives in, in the community, um, what would you like to see President Trump doing in, in Syria and in, in these parts of the world?
3: Well, I have mixed feelings about the recent bombing with the Tomahawk missiles, the 59 that were uh, attacking that air base, um, but um, it also may stop Assad from using chemical weapons against his own people. Uh, if if that happens, then it's good, but he did not, uh, President Trump, I'm a big supporter of his, as you know, mm-hmm. and uh but he didn't go to Congress and get any authorization, and I'm uncomfortable with us going into other countries without that authorization. So um, there's another problem that Assad is doing. He's using these barrel bombs against his own people, and innocent civilians and children are being killed, and that's bad, and that has to stop. Maybe by Trump showing some leadership, it will bring people to the table and have possibly some peaceful resolution. He's he's getting the attention of the Russians. They've been in there too, mess, messing things up. But um, m- maybe um, n- you know now over six years nothing happened. Maybe now with Trump taking some action, it'll get people uh, together. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, w- we can be the leader in in the in the world on issues like this. Um, over the last six years, I don't think we were. I mean. President Obama drew red lines and let uh, Syria cross them, but I don't think Trump will do that. So I'm hopeful that what he's doing will help. Um, but I, I'd like to see Congress get give some authorization. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and let, let me get David Keppel on real quickly because David has, may have a, I think you probably have a different perspective from Bob Halls as a member of the Bloomington Peace Action Coalition. How do you how do you view all this?
4: Well, thank you very much for having me, Bob. Uh, yes, Bloomington Peace Action Coalition believes that war is not the answer here. Uh, I want to acknowledge, I think all the panelists have said good things so far. First of all, the enormous pain that Iman, uh, expressed. My heart goes out, and I think it's, it's unconscionable that our current administration has demonized Muslims and, uh, doesn't understand our common humanity uh, and has, has turned away refugees. Uh, I think Professor Choksi made a very important point about outside actors and the effect they are having in prolonging this tragic civil war. And uh, I totally agree with Bob Hall in saying this must be voted on and authorized by Congress because one of the casualties of war is democracy. Uh, I hope that Congress will ask some hard questions. Uh, There's a false choice here, and that is between isolation and intervention. What we're saying is not that we shouldn't be involved. We're questioning whether dropping 7,500 bombs on Syria, as the United States has done, is really going to solve the problem. It's very much easier to get militarily involved than to see an end game that involves diplomacy and peace, uh, I sat down with Senator Lugar just before the invasion of Iraq, and said, "Couldn't we give the inspections a few more months?" And he said, "David, you know that's a good point, but we've got troops out in there there in the desert. They need to get the job done so they can come home, and we all know what the consequences of that were." This is the one hundredth anniversary of the start of World War One. I think we need to realize this globally can get much worse unless we put diplomacy, not military, first.
5: And, Professor, I, I want to give you a chance here to weigh in because I know you had you had something to say and then I probably have a follow-up. No. Uh, what
2: I was uh, in follow-up uh, to the comments just made, what struck me was that, yes, uh, battles can be won by generals. but. Ultimately, the peace and resolution occurs with politicians negotiating things. The problem is that there are so many different moving parts and so many internal and external actors, yes. yeah. and there's been just no way so far that has worked to get everyone around the table yes. and to have a sort of a transitional path that moves the current government out of out. That then com- comes up with either a single unity government or some form of regional separation. Let's remember that if you re- rewind this back to the French mandate after the First World War, the uh, the point being made then was to actually have, shall we say, semi-autonomous regions within Syria that would have given the Alawites their area, uh, Tartus uh, mm-hmm. and that area, that would have had in the, the southwest uh, the Christians, the Druze, uh, given the heartland uh, to the Sunnis and given the Kurds an area in the north. So that that was never fully implemented. It didn't, uh, so that, that is one possibility. The other more remote possibility is trying to find a leadership that can work. The problem is that under, Assad, under the Assads, there's never been an opportunity for any secular leadership to build up. And so you don't have that sort of training in place to be able to run a country. So those are some of the problems. And then, of course, let's not minimize the Russian role in this. The Russians have bombed Hospital after hospital after yes. hospital. Now, it is, okay. it is true that U.S. bombs do go astray, but the United States, by and large, uses a scalpel when it comes to military actions. The Russians just, and they have taken out, they, together with Assad and the Iranians, have taken out the majority of the civilian resistance, yes. and yes, and, and it is, uh, it is the, the approach has been to terrorize the population. So unless we can get that equation to, and dynamic to shift, there's simply no way that you can have a peaceful resolution.
5: Why is it that, that Russia and now us, why is it that these superpowers are getting, why did they originally get involved in Syria? Why did, w-
2: Well, Russia has a direct stake. Syria has been a Russian client. The Russians have had base as a naval base on the Mediterranean, and now more than ever at, at Tartus, and so now more than ever with the Russians reasserting themselves in Eastern Europe, and coming through the uh, Black Sea, the, uh, the base on the Eastern Mediterranean gives them per- perfect projection point. So the Russians are there. For Iran, it's important because the Iranians have used Syria as the supply line for Hamas and Hezbollah. So for the Iranians also retaining uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, Syria as a client state, that, so uh, yes. again, works well. So it's trying to untangle that, so in that mix, The US is a distant player. The EU are also distant players. And uh, that's why the Russians are there. That's why the Iranians are there. They're essentially trying to maintain their turf. There's one other uh, group I think that should be mentioned and that is the Gulf Emirates and the Saudis who have been supporting the Sunni Muslims as part of an attempt by uh, Saudi Arabia to keep Iran at bay in other words, to prevent Iran from re- reasserting itself in the Persian Gulf region after the nuclear negotiations, mm-hmm. so it's also become a power play between Sunnis and Shia, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, between Iran and its greater ally, the Russians, and Saudi Arabia and its greater ally, the United States. I'm
5: mm-hmm. gonna
0: give our phone number uh, in case you want to join us on the program, if you have a question or a comment, we're at eight one two. Eight eight five five zero eight one one, 8550811 or 18772859348 you can also follow us on at noon edition
5: I, I want to follow up on just something you said you said normally when we go in it's like using a scalp a scalpel which i think is incredibly relevant considering yesterday they dropped this moab bomb which does not at all seem like a scalpel um, <laughs> does that yeah. signal a change in how we are how we are fighting now i mean what are, what's going on i would like to hear from the other panelists but yeah. i
2: think it does uh, it, not just what happened in afghanistan but what also happened in syria we launched 59 tomahawk missiles yeah. mm-hmm. uh, we didn't we uh, you know just half a dozen would have taken care of what we needed to do the net result is of course let's keep in mind when i say scalpel i don't just mean munitions uh, even in the bombing, even in the bombing in Syria, we did, perhaps correctly, perhaps incorrectly, we notified. The Russians, in other words, there were no civilian casualties. In fact, there were no military casualties either. Then the Syrians were able to get out. The Iranians got out. The Russians got out. In other words, we we don't like to shed blood unnecessarily, and that's one great thing about the United States. Yeah. Okay. so you're uh, right. So the we so what we took out. Were, was Assad's means to deliver chemical weapons in terms of the aircraft. We did not, however, and I think, and I fault the military. I understand the reasons why they didn't do so. Uh, they, we did not take out the chemical weapons storage areas. Uh, the, the precursor materials, we didn't do that because one of them is an alcohol that could have sprayed they all over the want place. They yeah, Exactly, they didn't want it to spread uh, the reasons make sense, but, of course, the precursor chemicals are still there. And as has been pointed out, what they often do is they just roll this stuff into barrel bombs and pipe bombs, get up in helicopters, and toss them on innocent civilians. And that is one thing that the Assad regime has done that has devastated the population. And, and then the Russians take out the hospitals those folks go to.
3: How do you two feel about the United States going in after the chemical attack and doing this, getting involved in...
1: I, for me i i i had a l- hope <laughs> even you know people maybe they they, they will you know, wonder why i'd say that because uh, it it's a reaction it's a warning please hear you you uh, the red line is here they are civilians they are not numbers they are human being so that for me, if I take it from the human side as a mother, as a, I have I have nine years old, I have 14 years old. I imagine every day if I'm there, I'll be one of those people. i be. So that's why for me, I really uh, uh, the way even the approval of Congress without approval of Congress or what what was approval, uh, it's something done. Mm-hmm. Some, we, we've been waiting for six years. Yeah, yeah. I know, and we don't want it, the war. I want. I know, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We uh, need uh, the peace. Uh, but it's uh, been six years. How long do we have to wait? <laughs> David, go ahead. Yes.
4: Right. Well, I I want to come back to I think Sarah's very important point about the use of the uh, massive bomb yesterday, the GBU forty-three. That is a bomb that is so powerful. It couldn't even be dropped by an ordinary aircraft. It had to be dropped by a cargo plane. It is the conventional equivalent of a nuclear weapon. And this brings us back to the global context, to the fact this is the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. Uh, China just warned earlier today that uh, there are storm clouds over the Korean Peninsula. Uh, we have deteriorating strategic relations with Russia. Uh, I uh, absolutely share the horror at the Syrian regime. I am extremely skeptical about President Putin. But one thing that our great diplomat George Kennan did in the in the 1940s was he was able – this isn't for moral reasons, this is for practical reasons. You have to be able to see the thing from the other side's point of view or you're going to have a catastrophe. Yeah. And we have to understand how this looks to China. We have to understand how this looks to Russia. And we have to engage in risk reduction, uh, beca- including even as unimaginable as it may seem, we could stumble back into strategic arms race with very serious risk of a nuclear war. So for, for for ultimately, for moral reasons, we have to be able to think about this realistically in a global context and put diplomacy, not bombs, first.
0: Yeah. All right, we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, we're talking about all the um, strife throughout the, the world in the last uh, few weeks. And of course, it's been going on <laughs> for years and decades and centuries and generations. But uh, we've had a few... Um, Activities in the last week that we're really talking about today. If you want to join us on the program, 812 855 0811 or 1 877 285 9348, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
6: This is Noon Edition on WFIU.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we have four guests with us today. Iman al-Ramadan is a lecturer at the Indiana University School of Global and International Studies. Jamshid Chaksi is a professor at the IU School of Global and International Studies. Robert Hall is here in the studio with us. He is a the leader of the Grassroots Conservatives. And joining us by phone is David Keppel, spokesperson for the Bloomington Peace Action Coalition. If you want to join us on the program, give us a call at 812 855 0811 here in Bloomington, or 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington calling area. You can also join us uh, by following us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. Bob Hall had something he wanted to uh, say before we went to break. Yes, it's about that uh, huge bomb that was dropped
3: in Afghanistan. It was on the border where there are a lot of tunnels Mm -hmm. that are being used by the terrorists. And it was very targeted. It was a precision attack. They avoided civilians and they destroyed all those tunnels, which was an effective use of that bomb. It's the first time it's ever been used and it's not used in other situations. So it it served a very effective purpose. Mm
5: -hmm. I was reading a brief right before we came in from the AP that said um, Afghan officials say 36 Islamic State fighters were killed and there were no civilian casualties in that one.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. if I may just uh, follow up on what you just said. Uh, the it's, uh, it's uh, I guess it's hard to uh, really determine how many uh, terrorists were killed because if they were in the tunnels there you know who knows uh, what that mm-hmm. that de- 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 rate was. It's also uh, one could argue that for those tunnels they could have used maybe one of the bunker piercing bombs they had. I think they used this very large scale mob ordinance. Uh, to send a very clear message, as with that over that use of 59 tomahawks instead of maybe half a dozen. In other words, to, to sort of send a message, the so-called red line is that, that the U.S. will use overwhelming force if it chooses to do so. I think the message is not just to Assad. I think they know that Assad really doesn't care. He has nothing to lose at this point because he's going to be uh, out of uh, Syria one way or the other in the long run. He'll survive, but eventually he's gone. We saw what happened to Gaddafi. We saw what happened to Saddam Hussein. Uh, Assad is nothing to lose. That's the problem there. I think the message being sent really is to North Korea, on the one hand, to Iran on the other. Uh, and those, I think, are the places where that message was meant to be heard.
0: Mm-hmm. Professor yes, Choksi, I, oh, go ahead, David. Go ahead.
4: Yes, right. Well, I, I, I'd like to agree that it was a message uh, but uh, that is exactly what disturbs me so much about it, because if you make a, a send a message is one way of putting it, issue a threat is another. If you issue a threat, then you either have to carry it out or you are left looking as if you just drew a red line that, that then you aren't prepared uh, to, 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 to enforce. So let's take North Korea, uh, which is the really the, the greatest nightmare scenario in the in the immediate picture, uh, what would be the consequences of a U.S. strike on North Korea? Uh, the North Korean artillery is right near Seoul, and uh, we would have hundreds of thousands of casualties. So we've got to think very carefully about the consequences of threats that we issue, and uh, I'm uh, I'm particularly disturbed by this because. It is a quasi-nuclear threat, It a capability that no other country has except through the use of a nuclear weapon. And the Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak made very clear that if the United States uses quasi-nuclear capabilities that the Russians don't have except through nuclear weapons, they'll use nuclear weapons. So let's think very carefully what we're doing, not just in Afghanistan, not just in this particular use. But globally,
5: to avoid escalation, Professor Chosky, you mentioned former President Hamid Karzai um, just a second ago. And after this happened, he tweeted that his country was being used as a testing ground, and it was a it was up to them now to fight the USA. So I'm wondering, when he says something like that, what what sort of you, do you think is the reaction in Afghanistan about? what what happens next there towards
2: the U.S.? oh yeah clearly he was playing to the lo- local audience uh, gotcha. in the uh, in the <laughs> yeah. for pass that are, uh, for power that's going on in <laughs> Afghanistan which of course probably reflects the whole whole large issue of uh, the failure of the United States to create a stable state in Afghanistan 2 mil- 2 trillion dollars and s- thousands of lives later so and and that's perhaps uh, a warning of what maybe we shouldn't attempt to do uh, in Syria, in uh, Libya, or uh, 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 perhaps in North Korea. But I think the, 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 I think that by dropping this very large ordinance, uh, it, was not, it was not to draw a red line, it was more as sort of a, a more generic threat to try to, for example, convince the Chinese to take steps against North Korea. And the Chinese have begun to move troops down to the border uh, yes, of course. There is no direct way to take on North Korea because the retaliation would affect South Korea, would affect Japan, would affect China, uh, and uh, and certainly, uh, you know. So the it's more trying to convince, uh, particularly the Chinese, uh, that don't let the U.S. have to get involved. Take care of this problem yourself in North Korea because it's largely one of Chinese making.
5: So, what is the current situation in north korea and how is it different than i guess sort of the the same empty threats i feel like we've been hearing for years
2: north korea has a nuclear weapon if i may say so, so yeah, that, yeah. that's the number one yeah. t- difference
3: i like the idea that this president trump here. met with the he- head of china oh. and i think they've made some progress in their discussions so that is the best way to go is through china i'm against preemptory attacks uh, i'm not a neocon that's what they like to do uh, we should be using defensive weapons, you know, mo- whenever we can. But by using the diplomacy of China, President Trump, I think, is doing the most effective way.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, now oh, yeah, go ahead, David.
4: W- well, right. Well, uh, I have, uh, the, my long-term activism has been over nuclear weapons. And it is never good when another country develops nuclear weapons. The only way to address this in the long term is by strengthening the non proliferation regime. And we've got to remember Article six of the non proliferation treaty requires existing nuclear powers to take steps towards nuclear disarmament. Mm-hmm. The United States has not honored that and President Trump is on the edge. Of a, a, is welcoming a, a, an arms race and a nuclear buildup. We've got to, we've got to recognize there are other nuclear nations. The, the nuclear rogues aren't just the countries we don't like. Uh, for example, uh, Pakistan, India, and Israel are all outside the NPT regime. So we've got to work at this problem comprehensively. And if we want to solve the North Korean problem, we've got to look at the broader problem and move towards, uh, if I dare say so, the global abolition of nuclear weapons. Because if we don't do that, starting with practical risk reduction, far short of abolition, uh, we're we're going to see these terrible and indefensible weapons used again.
3: But David, how do you how do you do that with North Korea? They won't listen to you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, let well, me just.
4: Uh, we are. We're going to have to start very realistically, and 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 the the, the realistic thing is is a, a freeze, and uh, and uh, that is possible through very hard diplomacy, through involving the Chinese, through giving some security guarantees to the Chinese. They have things they're very concerned about. Uh, through uh, through. Uh, involving the new government of South Korea, which incidentally, uh, you know, differs from the, from, from the one they just had and is very concerned in avoiding escalation. So this isn't just our, uh, we don't have a, a right unilaterally to determine this situation, but we do have the ability through uh, strong diplomacy to reduce the risks. And what I do believe firmly is that escalation risks uh, huge unintended consequences.
2: Well, let me just jump in here and point something out that, yes, India and Israel are outside the proliferation treaty, but they have not proliferated. On the other hand, Pakistan and North Korea have, So, and that's been amply documented. But also, let's keep in mind that uh, the other great uh, uh, proliferators have been the Russians and the Chinese, and so it's it's that link particularly between China, North Korea, Pakistan, and Iran that created the whole Iranian nuclear problem and created the North Korean nuclear problem. Okay. So let's let's keep that in mind. So yes, you know, we can work towards, and I fully applaud, yes, we, I mean, nuclear weapons really serve no ultimate real function. But we are faced with the reality that many of the existing nuclear powers have spread that technology around. And... Uh, so And right now, it's come down to North Korea being actually having these weapons and threatening to use them. That's the problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local area. And follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I'd like to take a step back and, and ask sort of a historical question. You know, this area has been a very uh, difficult area for diplomacy there have been wars conflicts for you know generations basically but i just want to go back about 30 years when the soviet union went into afghanistan and i've always thought you know i, I remember thinking at the time as you know sort of a, a, a citizen of the us oh the soviet union you know, we heard we in the us heard Soviet Union, is going, they shouldn't have gone in there. They're gonna be in a mess. They're never gonna get out of Afghanistan. You can't win a war in Afghanistan. And then we went into Afghanistan. Can, can you, uh, Professor, can you sort of explain to me, did we not learn from history?
2: What? <laughs> well, yeah, it said that, uh, that no one has ruled Afghanistan. That's actually not correct. Even Alexander had problems, but the only country that's been able to rule Afghanistan historically is Iran, the Persian Empire. Uh, Afghanistan was well has long been part of the greater Iranian world. So Afghanistan can be ruled, but yes, the Soviets went in, and uh, our fear, the reason we got involved is our fear was they were going to move through Afghanistan into that little sliver of Pakistan that sits between Afghanistan and the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea, and therefore and then move down uh, to the ports uh, along there and have access to the Arabian Sea. So, we provided the weapons, the Saudis provided the ideology, and uh, we created the madrasas that led to what Trump denounces now as radical Islam that then uh, spewed all across the world. So, yeah, I mean, all the superpowers are certainly culpable in, in the, the, the spread of the problem. Mm-hmm.
5: What is the overall strategy right now? What is, what's our end goal? Bob? Do you know, just in terms of—I mean, we've had, what, three three bombings this month that— um, Well,
3: I think Trump, uh, President Trump, wants to be a leader on the world stage. And he surprised me because when he campaigned, he didn't talk like that. So I'm apprehensive about where it's going. Um I think Congress needs to get involved and and authorize any kind of activity in other countries. So, um, I, I'm kind of surprised myself.
5: So, that, so that's that's um. another question I have is like, I, who is authorizing all of this? Because he Trump said yesterday he had given full authorization to the military. What's that? What's that mean? Well, uh,
2: traditionally the, the Clinton, the Bush administration, and then uh, the Obama administration. Uh, Raids that could possibly have civilian ca- casualties were always determined uh, by uh, inner circle that involved not just the president, but but uh, the, uh, the people who uh, were technically trained and others who had the legal background in making these decisions. They were very carefully crafted. Uh, uh, but it appears that President Trump has moved that out of the White House largely to the military. There's, 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 that provides certainly the White House with political cover. If there are uh, civilian deaths, then it's the military to bri- blame. The problem is that one does uh, usually want civilian oversight of militaries. So that, that's the other casualty. In terms of end game, I'm sure Iman would agree the end game for Syria would be to come up with some resolution where Syria returns to normalcy, where there's safety, there's water. Need, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where there's water, food, yeah. uh, medical services, where uh, some, uh, where a, a viable non-dictatorial government can exist. Uh, that, that would certainly be the hope, the long-term goal. The question is, how does one get there, particularly since uh, whether it's been the russians the soviets before them or the united states none of our we've not really been successful in nation building shall we say since the korean war uh, you know since then it really hasn't uh, proved to be a success afghanistan now nah, uh, iraq is still in chaos and uh, libya is spinning out of control as well so and that, and and I'm just, say, I'm, I just—I
1: yeah. I always have question. Uh, what is a long-term government strategy in the future? We don't know what, what will happen. You know, we had this help. We we say you know, uh, uh, warning the Syrian, uh, the fighting and everything uh, by this uh, attack after the chemical weapon, and uh, now we say what's next. And uh, I agree with everybody. I think, Bob, he, he really suggested something that he, we care about the civilians. Yes. And it's really good with David as well, with the diplomacy. But I have here, David, uh, this uh, force or very powerful diplomacy, how long it will take for us to solve the, the, have the solution for the, the well, uh, fight in Syria? I, how long?
4: Right. Well... Let, 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 me, uh, let me respond to that. First of all, on the issue of authorization, ultimately it is we, the citizens, who authorize or don't authorize something uh, through our action or through our inaction. Yeah. So citizens, if citizens care, we need to pick up the phone, we need to call our senators, we need to call our representatives, we need to email President Trump, we need to show up. We're having a rally on April 26th on Courthouse Square at 530 called Stopping the Next War. And Imad, uh, you have brought up the absolutely heartbreaking human dimension of this. And I think we always need to come back.
1: You know, David, it, it because, not, I'm it, sorry, the civ- civilians not. are paying the price now. The, the only right. person who pay all this price are those people, innocent people.
4: Exactly, exactly. And so let me me comment on that. President Trump has supported a military-first approach. He has a budget that privileges the military over public health, over action on climate change, and over diplomacy. There are more people employed in the grocery stores of the military than we have diplomats. This is already the long run. We're talking about the tragic, heartbreaking crisis in Syria, but we're also talking about future wars. Uh, through cl- The military itself recognizes very clearly that climate change, for example, can cause future conflicts. So we have to start now by investing in peace the right kind of intervention is prevention, and we're not doing it. It's very appropriate that this program is sponsored by the School of Public Health, because we've got to look at this in the long run as a, and as a general problem. As heartbreaking as each circumstance is, we've got to interve- intervene in a truly humane, legal, and international way.
0: Okay, we're going go to go to Bob first, and then Iman, and then we have a phone call, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay but
3: david president obama's approach didn't work he was more into the diplomacy and talking and talking and talking and it did not work so we need another approach and to bring up climate change which you know is not (laughs) it's not factual it's 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 irrelevant so um you, you need to focus on the situation and you have to do some action and i think President Trump is doing some things that may bring people to the table. President Obama did not. He did a lot of talking, but he never brought them to the table, so it was ineffective. So let's give President Trump a
0: chance. Uh, just have to say, climate change is not factual according to Bob Hall, but 97 of the <laughs> scientists say it is. So okay. and
2: climate tra- change uh, is a military threat, and it use and it's. Uh, I know the U.S. military has focused on that. Uh, But anyway, let's have Iman. Maybe uh,
1: starting with Bob, what Bob said, uh, let's uh, hopefully, we are looking forward to have uh, all these people on table uh, and discuss, please. Uh, Try to agree all together because uh, you watch videos, we watch all of this we are tired of watching videos we are yeah. believe me i'm tired of reading the news it's not the news here if i'm on i read my news my, my home my home country i feel every day you have 100 people were killed this son or this child he said to his mom goodbye he's going to school came back he didn't find his family this uh, dad he in uh, the chemical weapon he didn't find all his wife and his kids so it's something depressing. It's not depressing for me. Depressing for everybody, every human who does have heart. Hmm. So uh, I know that I, I'm not, as we say, you know, diplomat or politician or. Okay, so let's bring everybody together, please. I don't know. Just uh, let's do something.
0: All right. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to Jane yeah, on yeah. the
1: phone. Jane. <laughs> Hi there. Hi. Thank you very
7: much to the panelists today. This is a really interesting dialogue. Everybody has got such interesting comments. I just want to say that um, when I was hearing the talk about the mother of all bombs being dropped, the MOAB, uh, when I read that in the paper this morning, I, I just had a terrible flashback to the Vietnam War when the U.S. was bombing and bombing and bombing, trying to get the Viet Cong in their tunnels, and how so ineffective that was, and how they also dropped Agent Orange to try to, I don't know, whatever Agent Orange does to people, terrible things. And also about the very inaccurate um, casualty counts, that the military at that time would get us. I was a kid and I just remember reading these things and just thinking this, this, this has nothing to do with reality. So I am very concerned about a response that looks at the military as the way to get people anywhere.
2: Uh, I think the what is happening here is that the Trump administration is trying to use the military to put pressure, not just on Assad, but on Assad's patrons, the Iranians and particularly the Russians, to force mm-hmm. them to come to the table because unless that issue is solved, there's no solution to the Syrian crisis and the, the civilian deaths will continue, particularly the... Uh, the uh, Assad's br- brutal daily killing of civilians, uh, and the Russians and the Iranians following on that. And let's keep in mind that the, the Iranians are following with Assad's troops and, and indulging in ethnic and religious cleansing as well. So you have that issue, and I think what, what's also what, uh, what uh, the, uh, in terms of the, uh, the Moab bomb uh, being uh, detonated in uh, uh, Afghanistan, I think uh, there... The, 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 the real fear uh, in policy and military circles in Washington is that Afghanistan is going to return back to being complete, uh, overrun, and it is even as we speak. I mean, ISIS is advancing there, the Taliban is re-advancing there, so the fear is that we're going to have uh, the unstable uh, Syria, unstable Libya, uh, uh, unstable Afghanistan, yeah. and then on top of all that, the Korean issue going off. David?
4: Yes. Hi. Yes, right. Well, I would absolutely like to affirm what Jane said. I think you make an extremely important point. And while we're talking about the the terrible human consequences, let's not forget the war in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia has committed what Human Rights Watch says are terrible violations, where the ports are being blockaded and there's the greatest threat of famine in the world, Let's not forget that if we're concerned about human beings, that President Trump just cut the UN peacekeeping budget for Congo, which has a, an equally hor- horrible civil war. So if we, we can't just take one of these situations, as terrible as it is, in isolation, and then think that we can solve this by dropping bombs. It's just too complex and the unintended consequences are unacceptable.
2: David is absolutely correct when he says that you cannot take these in isolation because we have these proxy wars occurring in Syria, in Afghanistan, and yes, in Yemen. In Yemen, the conflict used to be between uh, the the Shia groups and the Sunni groups. It was a domestic conflict. Then the Saudis got involved, the Iranians got involved, now the Russians uh, with the Iranians, the Americans with the Saudis. So once again, you have these local domestic conflicts that very quickly become uh, uh, playgrounds for regional powers and then become playgrounds for global powers. And... uh, even we can pull back north korea into this north korea has long been uh maybe increasingly less so but has long been a chinese client okay Mm -hmm. whereas south korea has been an american client state uh, so once again, so we have this sort of ge- larger geopolitics. I don't that's think we are important. going to be able to solve that in that's any fair. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why maybe we come back to what Iman says mm-hmm. that is trying to solve individual problems, maybe uh, use military force to try to force uh, to compel negoc- negotiated settlements to You solve the individual issues than trying to solve some kind of major geopolitical kumbaya. We
0: have only about two and a half minutes to go. So I really want to give each of you like 45 seconds at the end of the show to kind of sum up, you know, what you think should happen next. And David, I want to start with you.
4: Well, let's start with each of us listening to this show because we are the power. (laughs) We have to speak up. We have to contact our members of Congress. And we have to insist on putting diplomacy and peace first and addressing real human needs and not forgetting the terrible unintended consequences of even the best laid plans this is not a game this is a tragedy
0: all right, thank you Bob Hall. well, part of um, I mean we
3: haven't even talked about Iraq where we were things were peaceful, and we pulled all of our soldiers out and then. Uh, there's a vacuum that was created, and now we're putting people back in. So if we'd had a retaining force there, we might not have the problem we have now. But, I mean, I don't like to have our soldiers over there. I mean, should we pull them out of Afghanistan? I mean, uh, you've you've got to have a balance. And you also have to get the people to, to look at peace. I mean, even in your country, you don't want more refugees, you want people to be no, able to go back no. to your own country in yeah, safety. People,
1: yeah, yes. People, so we yeah.
3: need to create a safe place for people to live. Yeah. All right. Iman?
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I go to the point, we don't need more re- refugees. And some people, they, don't, they can't leave the country. They can't afford leaving the country. So think about those people. Mm-hmm. That uh, I'm hopeful and always, we are waiting. We are waiting. And we are hopeful that... Uh, we will get this balance, global balance, and all this uh, mess in the world. <laughs> and let's start with, maybe, step by step. Mm-hmm. And let's start with those uh, poor people who suffer and uh, at least try to fly zone.
2: Jamshid, 30 well, seconds. Yeah, okay, I, I agree with David that, yes, soft power should not be underestimated. The uh, State Department is gutted and that is a problem. I do agree with Robert that once we are involved, we cannot walk away. We have to to stay in the duration. We need to understand that. And I agree with Iman that yes, you have to solve things locally so that the immediate problems, immediate crises, uh, can be uh, held at bay. All right, we are out
0: of time. I want to thank our guests, Iman Al Ramadan, Jamshid Choksky, Robert Hall, David Keppel, and Ryan D. Batista, our producer, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Zalzberg. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you.